The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In episode 84 of the podcast, we looked at the trials of Oscar Wilde. That story had three main characters. Today's story has four. In the first story, the three prime movers were the playwright and bon vivant Oscar Wilde, his paramour, Lord Alfred Douglas, also known as Bosey, and Bosey's father, the Marquis of Queensbury. The story was full of triumph and tragedy, just as Oscar Wilde conquered the literary world with his most famous and greatest plays, he stumbled into a trial against Bosey's father, which ended in Wilde's imprisonment. While in prison, Wilde wrote a document called De Profundis, literally meaning from the depths. De Profundis is a letter to Bosey that covers everything from bitter recriminations to sharp and often biting criticism of Bosey as an artist and life partner to a defense of Wilde's actions, to a tender acknowledgement of the feelings that Wilde had inescapably felt and still felt toward the younger man. Bosey didn't receive the letter directly. Instead, Wilde entrusted it to his literary executor, a man named Robert Ross. He's our third character today. Ross was himself a former lover of Wilde's. After Wilde's tragically early death, Ross and Bosey eventually fell into a feud about the manuscript that led to yet another horrible outcome. Our guest today, Laura Lee, has written a book about their feud called Oscar's Ghost, The Battle for Oscar Wilde's Legacy. She'll tell us who Robert Ross was, how the three of them became entangled, how the manuscript came to dominate Bosey's thinking, and how Bosey's attempts at revenge and reputation building all played out in the courtroom. Now, I said there were four characters. Who's the fourth character, you might be wondering? Oh, there's a knock at the door. There's a knock. Hello, I'm oh. Oliver Twist. Oh, hi, More Oliver. Call, please, sir. <laughs> That's all I'm asking for. And guess who's been doling out the gruel here at the workhouse? Who's that, Oliver? Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Jack Wilson. Oh. Ah, uh, I guess he ain't a bad sort. When he's not jawing my ear off about some chap named Dickens. Oh, I couldn't care that's my less job, about Oliver. some old writer fellow. But I would like some more gruel. Won't you please throw a few shillings at Mr. Wilson so he can spare mm. another spoonful of slop for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful. Okay, thank you, Oliver. A blast from the past. For those of you who are eager to help the show... Throw a few shillings in the direction of Mr. Jack Wilson, that insufferable drudge. Or maybe you're not so willing. Maybe you're just grudgingly, reluctantly willing. I don't discriminate among you this <laughs> this week. I'm thanking an anonymous donor, a new Patreon who has generously offered to help out the show with some much appreciated financial assistance. And you can join that club, too, by heading over to patreon.com slash literature. And guess what, people? We're headed toward the holiday season, and that means you can now, for a limited time, order up some History of Literature swag. I'm selling mugs in two sizes, with the History of Literature logo and a gorgeous tote bag, also with the logo. You can see these materials at historyofliterature.com slash shop. 
If you order now, you should have them in plenty of time to give to your friends, your loved ones, or yourself. Don't you need a treat for the holidays? Why not? And why not help out the cause of literature and podcasting in the process? That's historyofliterature.com slash shop. And this isn't going to be around forever, mainly because I really don't want to be a shopkeep. The world is too much with us, people. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Nothing we see in nature that is ours. We're not about commerce here at the History of Literature podcast. Except, I guess we are. We probably... <laughs> We provably are. That's historyofliterature.com slash shop. Oh, one more thing about the store. You can also buy me a coffee there, or in fact, a virtual coffee. This is just a straight-up donation in $5 increments for the virtual coffee or for the nifty swag you can pay with a PayPal account or a credit card. So, where were we? Four characters, Oscar, Bosey, Robert Ross, will reveal the fourth character soon enough. That's today on the History of Literature. Okay, <laughs> cutting the theme song a little short today. I had to work it in somehow. So the fourth character, let me just read some opening lines from Laura Lee's book. Quote, this is a story about stories. On its most basic level, Oscar's Ghost is about Oscar's wa Oscar Wilde's life and how its telling affected the lives of two people whom fate had cast as characters in it. But it is also about other stories, the stories told in courtrooms masquerading as the, quote, whole truth, end quote, the stories we tell ourselves to create an identity, stories we tell others to carve out a place in the community. Stories that marginalized groups tell themselves to make sense of their difference, and the stories society relies upon to explain a moment in history. Oscar's Ghost explores how all these stories interact and what happens when contradictory narratives collide. End quote. That's the fourth character us. We, the reading public, those of us who care about Oscar Wilde, who he was, what he wrote, what it all means for us today. Ross and Bosey each had their own reasons for building the narrative of Oscar Wilde, and you might say that they dedicated their lives to creating an image of Wilde that we, meaning people like us, you and me, would have. Were they successful? I've been reading a wonderful literary biography of John Ashbery, and I was struck by some statements in the preface. The biographer, and I'm hoping to have her on the show soon, the biographer spent all this time with the poet, going through his materials, asking him questions, and she asked him if she could write his biography, and he said, I thought you already were. And it kind of made me think, actually, this interview with Laura Lee made me think, I call this podcast the history of literature, but in some ways it's not really about the history of literature in any conventional sense. We don't walk through timelines and author names and lists of works. We don't study this in any organized way. It's really about taking literature and trying to find meaning, trying to find out who wrote the damn thing and why, what it meant for readers, and what, if anything, we can get from it today, whether that's by reading the work itself or 
understanding the creative spark that resulted in the work. We're trying to understand why and how the book resonated with readers, either now or way back when or at some point in the past. I want literature to matter. I want it to mean something. I want it to stretch me out, to call forth all my powers. It's a journey I've undertaken, and I'm so glad that so many of you have been following along the entire way or dipping in here and there as you take one journey of your own or just somehow, for whatever reason, you're listening. Maybe this is your first episode. Doesn't matter. I love it. I love you all. <laughs> I don't know how we get on these benders. Anyway, this isn't a kind of encyclopedia version of literature. We're not reciting facts and titles and dates and all the dry-as-dust aspects that a title like History of Literature might lead you to suspect. Instead, we're plunging in, deep-diving. So all that is context for today's discussion, because in some ways I think our guest is a little more on the history side of the history of literature. She has some objectivity. She recounts the story. But at the same time, I think she's in simpatico. She's in deep simpatico with our project here on the podcast. She came to the story because it fascinated her. She wanted to know what happened. And the stakes matter. The stakes matter. The stakes are really how we came to understand the Oscar Wilde we think of today. For all these people involved, Oscar Wilde's reputation, how he would be viewed by their peers and posterity, this all mattered to them. They had a role in the outcome. They were invested. And so we have them to thank, if thank is the right word. What do we know about Keats or the Brontes or Baudelaire or Dickens, Langston Hughes or Plato? We can stick to the texts, but don't we miss something if we do? I'm interested in the act of creation, why someone made something. Oscar Wilde is one of the great figures in history. He's as famous as Mark Twain or Kafka or Dostoevsky, probably. And these people all wrote great works, but they also stand for something, don't they? In our minds, aren't they figures that represent something? Well, that doesn't just happen. Something about their biography, their persona, stands out. Something makes us think the way we do about them. Some details, some mythologizing, perhaps, some biography, some memoir, some publishing event, some feud, some tragedy, some love, some triumph. It's part of what draws me to the field in the first place. But for so many writers, it's already preserved. The story is like those rocks in a cave that have been worn smooth by the hands of tourists. By the time you get there, it's a different thing. And by the time I started reading Oscar Wilde, the basic view of him was set. We can probe it, we can find new truths, learn new things, develop new understandings, but maybe that's for the specialists. Maybe the general public will hold the general view for 50 or 100 or 500 years. All those minds thinking about authors, thinking about them in a particular way. And if you've ever known an author or appeared in a book, you know what it's like to wonder if you yourself are being dragged along for the ride. You're sort of in that author's shadow. You have a stake in the myth. Well, 
This is a story where we see that mythologizing happening before our eyes. We see two people who very much have a stake in the myth. They fight about it, but we have a stake in the myth too. For many people, the ending of the story is the trial and the early death of Oscar Wilde, which is where we ended the story last time. For others, it's the release of the manuscript to the public long after all the key players have died. And for others, the ending has not arrived and will not arrive. For others, the ending to the story always moves. Because the ending is really ours, and the subject is really us. Laura Lee, after the break. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is author Laura Lee, whose 20th book, Oscar's Ghost, was recently published here in the U.S. and in the U.K. We've discussed the trial and imprisonment of Oscar Wilde before here on the History of Literature, but Oscar's Ghost takes a look at the conflict that arose in the aftermath of those events, as Wilde's friends and former lovers became engaged in a dispute that led to stalking, blackmail, witness tampering, prison, and lawsuits with Oscar Wilde's legacy hanging in the balance. Laura Lee, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. So I think for a lot of people, the Oscar Wilde story kind of ends with the sad story of his trial and his imprisonment and his tragically early death. But for you, in a sense, that was only that was more of a beginning. What drew you to this part of the story? Well, when I read uh, De Profundis, I was very taken with it, and um, you know, I wanted to know more. And I realized that I had read the edited version, which came out in 1905 or 1908. I'm I'm not sure which, but whichever mm. you can download free onto your Kindle. That's what I had read. Right. And um, and then I was reading more about it, and I realized that the full version was released in the complete works, which I happen to have on my shelf. So I started reading that. And, you know, the, the contrast between some of his 
statements about Lord Alfred Douglas in De Profundis, um, because the letter was written to Douglas or in the form of a letter to Douglas, you know, some of them just were very shocking to me, contrasted with some of his philosophy about Christ as artist. And of course you wonder, well, what does the other guy have to say? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lord Alfred Douglas, of course, was not a shrinking violet. He had a lot to say. Yeah. And I was just fascinated by how much a hundred years later, reading what Douglas wrote, he just has such a distinct and interesting personality. Um, but right. of course, then he was at war with Robert Ross, who was uh, Wilde's literary executor. And so reading Douglas, I said, well, you know, what does Ross have to say about all this war that he's writing about? Right. So uh, that book got me interested. And okay. I felt like because the story had been told of these two men only in their own biographies, every writer kind of had to take a side. Mm. And so I wanted to try to just figure out as much as I could what happened while trying to be as uh, sympathetic or empathetic to to each of them or, you know, understand what they were thinking as much as I could. Right. Yeah, it's a real triangle here. And when you focus on one, it's it's uh, it's hard to keep all three and their different agendas and their different relationships with one another. Uh, it's it's something that definitely we should unpack. But I want to start with the manuscript because, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, there's really sort of two versions. There's the version that was published initially, and then there was a a lot of it that was unpublished. And this isn't just a case where one is shorter and one is. Um, you know, was was edited for for length, but it was a very specifically edited for a very particular reason. Yeah, the the Day for Fundus was written by Oscar Wilde in jail, mm-hmm. and he wrote it to Lord Alfred Douglas. But he always envisioned it as sort of a multi-purpose kind of a document. It was kind of his artistic statement as well as a, a personal letter. So it had p- parts that were very personal and very raw. Um, and parts that were more philosophical and artistic. And so when he got out of jail, he handed it to his friend Robert Ross, um, who he trusted on business matters and literary matters. And he wanted him to send the original to Douglas, at least these were the instructions that that we have that he Mm. gave him, Mm -hmm. um, and make a typescript. And um, he, he was he wanted him to send parts of it, the artistic parts to friends who would be interested. And I imagine he saw it as a draft for future works that he was going to do because he didn't know that he wasn't going to live too much longer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the evidence is that Wilde wanted Douglas to see the entire manuscript. Yeah. The only letter where he gives instructions on what to do with this manuscript, um, was to Robert Ross is that he was to give the original handwritten document to Douglas mm. and make a make a typescript that he could work from. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't happen. And why that didn't happen is disputed. Ross said that after Wilde got out of jail, he gave him verbal instructions not to send the original. Um, I see. But we don't know if that happened or not. Right. Now, the interesting thing about that is that this isn't just a love letter to Douglas. I always think of him as Bosey. It wasn't just a love letter to him, but it actually, in some ways, kind of repudiated him. 
Yeah, it. I mean, it's 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 got lines in there like, um, you know, never think for a moment that I thought that you were worthy of the love that I gave you. I knew that you were not. I mean, mm. he was he was angry. He was hurting. He was pointing out all of Bosie's flaws. He was going back over all of the money he spent because he was dealing with his bankruptcy. You know, he was writing from a place of pain, um, but he wrapped up by saying that they were going to be reunited and be together. So it wasn't a mm. breakup letter, um, but it was a, a painful and angry letter. But it had a lot of different moods because he wrote it over a long period of time. Right. And do you do you read it as heartfelt, or was there part of him that was trying to uh, restore his own reputation or kind of show an act of contrition to his critics or the people who had put him in jail? I think it had a lot of different purposes. I think that there were parts that were straightforward, a letter to Bosey. I think there were parts of it where he got into the flow as, as a writer and was an in, enjoying, you know, being an artist in that difficult environment. And mm -hmm. he was enjoying his own play with language. And that idea of, you know, in in the Ballad of Reading Jail, where he said you always kill the one you love, that was an idea that he'd been playing with long before he met Bosey as an artist. And so I think he kind of was playing with that theme of, you know, a destructive love um, mm. artistically. And so that colored part of it. But a lot of it was just colored by his prison mindset. Mm -hmm. um, it's a document that had a lot of different characters and a lot of different moods as he went along writing it. Right. And so the idea, at least in the letter, it sounds like it was he would give this manuscript to Ross. The handwritten version would go to Bosey, but then Ross would create this excerpted version or pull from it things that Wilde had to say about the nature of art, for example. Well, I think that what he, he he asked him to send certain parts of it, excerpts, to friends of theirs who had been very supportive of him during his trials. Mm -hmm. And the the rest of the typescript, I think his intention was to continue to work on it, to use it as material, um, because he wasn't planning to die a couple of years later. So I think he thought he had time to work on that material and use it for something. And I don't think he intended for Ross necessarily to be the one to edit it, but Ross may have had conversations with him about what parts mm -hmm. he wanted edited, what he wanted to do with it. Um, so what he did put out in 1905 and 1908 uh, may very well have been what Wilde told him was the public part. And who was Robert Ross? I think he's much less well-known to us than uh, Alfred Douglas. Well, uh, Robert Ross was a, a friend of both Wilde and Douglas, and he was uh, reported to be, purported to be um, Wilde's first male lover. Mm. Uh, it's not sure if that's true or not. Uh, I think that Ross believed it, but they were, they had um, a good friendship. Ross was someone who was a caregiver by nature. He liked to take care of things. He had a business mind as well as uh, an artistic mind, so he could help Wilde and all of his artists. He was always very supportive of different artists, 
and he could help them with all of the kind of mundane things that they didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And he was also uh, a friend of Douglas's in the early days? Yeah, they got along. Douglas always, he, he tended to fight with people, and Ross too, as, as a matter of fact. They, they both had artistic personalities, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. and they would you know, have disagreements. But I didn't find that they were at odds or jealous of each other in their youth before the, the tragedy. From what I saw, they were good friends, and they were part of this circle that was kind of a counterculture. They were very much involved in the same kind of things, activities, artistically, socially. Mm-hmm. Um, and did it uh, seem like they had different personalities? I think that they had a lot in common. Mm. They both seemed to not deal with rejection very well. They both seemed to overreact sometimes when they felt like a, a friend wasn't loyal to them. Bozy, of course, was he had extreme emotions. He had depressions and sort of manic periods of crazy energy. Mm-hmm. And Ross was more stable. He was, people kind of talked about him as being uh, wise, wiser than his years, whereas they talked about Bozy as kind of being an eternal child. Right. Well, it's interesting that you say that, that you were struck by how much they actually had in common because uh, it seems as though the two of them have kind of been handed down in history, at least before your book, as being sort of the opposites. And one is the good angel and one is the bad angel. And, and Bozy is the one who's always dragging Oscar into trouble or or kind of selfishly using uh, Oscar and his reputation or his, his literary skills in, in to benefit Bozy, but that Ross was the the faithful servant who just wanted to do do his best for Oscar's work. But it sounds like um, you maybe saw a little more, that it was a little more complex than that. Yeah, I think it was quite a bit more complex. And certainly Ross had more of a sense of sort of day-to-day responsibilities of, you know, taking care of money, of um, just he was more grounded in terms of not running headlong into danger. But both he and Bozy were part of the same social circle. They were both doing those kind of activities that were illegal in the Victorian times and that would um, you know, get them into trouble. They were both involved in what they called the cause, which was, I guess we would call it something like gay rights today, but mm-hmm. um, it was kind of a different culture. But they were, they were both involved in that before Wilde's downfall and after a lot of what I read people talked about Wilde being kind of egged on by his friends in the plural so Mm -hmm. this community of friends was kind of leading him on to do more and more crazy things and encouraging him in his fight with Lord Alfred Douglas's father and I think that Ross and Douglas were united in that Mm -hmm. and that they were young friends and that um, now we think of it as a disaster, Wilde's attempt to sue Queensbury. Like we knew, right. we know what happened, yeah. and we feel like that's the only thing that could have happened, and everybody should have seen that was a disaster, and only Lord Alfred Douglas didn't see it as a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there were a lot of reasons for them to think that he was that Wilde was going to win in his suit, mm. um, and so it wasn't as reckless a thing to encourage him you know, as it sounds to us today. 
Right. Okay. So uh, I want to sort of set the stage for this amazing scene that you have uh, early in the book where there is a trial and Bozy is on the stand. And at the heart of this is really what's at the heart of, of this entire story, which is this manuscript. So just to remind everyone, this is a manuscript that Wilde wrote and it was addressed to Bozy. And Bozy now, at this point, has only seen what's published, right? It's only He's only seen the excerpts from it. And Ross has not given him the entire manuscript. I guess we should start with, how did they end up uh, at trial? What was this trial about? Well, when the edited version of De Profundis came out, um, Douglas didn't know that it was a letter to him, and he even reviewed it um, for a publication um, you know, this as as a new wild document that he, he didn't know it was a letter to him. Mm. Shortly thereafter, he and Ross had a falling out um, over you know different different things. They grew in different directions, and they had they had fallen out. And Ross started feeling like he wanted to get the true story as he understood it, which was what Wilde had written in De Profundis mm-hmm. out there. He didn't care anymore if 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 Bosey was hurt because he didn't they weren't on good terms mm. but he was i don't think he was trying to hurt him but he he didn't he wasn't concerned at that point right and so he started to share that with biographers and one of the first biographies of Oscar Wilde was uh, by Arthur Ransom and uh when it came out it talked about each of Wilde's work and what their origins were and it described De Profundis as a letter to someone who was responsible for his downfall. Mm. And um, it described Douglas as someone who had lived off of Wilde in his good times, who abandoned him, uh, who was uh, with him for the money, and then uh, once the money ran out, left him. Mm-hmm. So uh, Bosey was surprised yeah. Um, yeah. because he didn't know that that, that, was a, that it had been a letter to him. And he was hurt by the description of their relationship. So he filed a lawsuit, uh, a libel suit, against Ransom. As part of the discovery for the case, that was the first time they sent him the typescript, although he never did get the original handwritten document. Mm-hmm. So the preparation for that case was the first time he got to see all of all of these recriminations that oh, Wilde had written. He got to see the whole thing at that point? He got to see, yeah, in, in preparing for the case, he got a typescript of the, of De Profundis, of mm-hmm. the whole letter, mm-hmm. prepared by Ross and the legal team. Uh, and so then uh, it comes to the courtroom, and there's a very dramatic uh, moment where he's, was he in the witness stand when this happened? So he had filed the, the libel suit, and Ransom had claimed justification, essentially saying this is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he went into court to prove, I guess, that it, that it wasn't true, that he hadn't lived off of Wilde and abandoned him. So the legal team decided to read um, all of De Profundis, or most of De Profundis, uh, which had been provided by Ross. And so he had to sta- first stand there, because uh, it was customary to stand, because he was going to be cross-examined on this material. Right. And this is, of course, this letter is uh, 50,000 words long. (laughs) It's it's longer than um, the picture of Dorian Gray. (laughs) 
And right. so he's standing right. in court as they're reading about how he has, you know, his has no talent for poetry and he's selfish and uh, all of these all of these things. And you there's a point where Wilde says something like whenever you were with me, I you ruined my creativity and I should say that you were always with me and really depicting him as a real negative influence on Wilde and his work. Yeah, I think that the you know he blames him for for um, disrupting his creative process, um, mm-hmm. uh, keeping him from doing his achieving what he should as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, he mocks he mocks uh, Bozy's own poetry, which he was very proud of. Mm. You know, he goes into basically all of the events of their relationship together in the most negative light. And and he stood there in court while they while they read that, and he was being accused essentially. the The trial was about whether he had abandoned Wilde. That was what the libel was, but it turned into uh, a case about whether or not Douglas was homosexual, mm. and so they kind of ignored the facts of the case. So he was trying to prove that he hadn't abandoned Wilde, but if he was too friendly with Wilde, then that was suspicious. And so he was just, you know, it was just a terrible situation for him. So, so this was basically he wanted to prove that he, that he hadn't abandoned Wilde because that was the source of the libel. But if he had said, no, I didn't abandon him because, in fact, he was my true love, that would have landed him in other kinds of trouble. Is that kind of the tightrope that he was walking here? Yeah, I mean, for example, they they asked him, like, how could you live with him after you knew what he had done? And this was, oh, you know, so yeah. the, the, the charge was that he had abandoned Wilde, but the fact that he lived with him was making him guilty. And mm-hmm. if, he, if he did anything that was too familiar with Wilde, it, it tended to prove that he was Wilde's lover, which was not legal. Whereas if he was not friendly to Wilde, then it proved that he had abandoned him. Yeah. Why? So he was in this, you know, this terrible corner. That kind of reminds me of the of Oscar Wilde's trials too, where it's almost like the lesson here is in that era that uh, homosexuals should avoid court because it ends up becoming, you know, difficult to unentangle themselves from those allegations. What's really interesting in the story of Douglas and Ross is that they keep repeating versions of the Wild trial mm. um, throughout the rest of their lives, really. They kept going into court to try to... They were suing one another for libel. And it was kind of a toss-up whether you would get a judge who was... You know, how much animosity he had towards homosexuality would play a big part in who was going to get justice yeah. in all of these cases. Right. Okay, so then what happens after the trial? Well, after the ransom trial, Douglas essentially made Ross enemy number one and decided that he was going to prove to the world that he was homosexual, that Ross was homosexual. Um, and so they were both using personal letters that they had written when they were very close to one another and mm. trying to um, find 
lovers that they knew about because they had been good friends. So he he was just on a mission. And at the heart of it, what he wanted was to get Ross to give up De Profundis to him. He wanted to get back um, De Profundis, and he wanted to get back his personal letters to Wilde, which Ross had taken as Wilde's executor, and his letters to Ross. He wanted to get Ross painted into a corner where he would have to give those things up. And so it was kind of a mutually assured destruction and yeah. they just uh, they went to war. Did he did Bozy think that if he got those things it it would be like his best way to control what was being said about him or his image or the the uh conception that he wanted the public to have of his relationship with Wilde? I think so. Um I think you know, at this time, Douglas went through a, a religious conversion, and so he he had sort of renounced his his past. He thought he he had, you know, been badly behaved. He he didn't believe in the things that he had believed when he was young, and so he didn't want that to be what his public image was. And he thought he had he had a much more optimistic idea of our love of poetry he thought he would be remembered as a poet and he could kind of make this go away or he could he could tell his story as he understood it so he so in addition to the attacks or the repudiations that wild had on bozy for the way that their relationship had gone and the things that had happened in it he was maybe trying to keep out of print wild saying uh you know your poetry is inferior yeah, your poetry is inferior. He wanted to keep out of print and out of the courtrooms. I mean, there were a lot of letters that were much more. They were just there were just a lot of letters where he talked to Robert Ross about boys and mm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that painted him as a criminal essentially in that time. So he he wanted those things to go away. But he also just felt very personally betrayed by Robert Ross mm. mm-hmm. for what happened in that case. Right. Okay, and then Ross, though, he had already given the manuscript to a library. Yeah, he gave it to the British Library. When when they started falling out, he wanted to be sure that that manuscript would be protected. And so he gave it to the British Museum with the instructions that no one could look at it or no researchers could have access to it until I think it was like 1962, after all of the people who might be mentioned in it would be dead. And once Douglas found out about this, this was like like his legacy was sitting out there. He, you know, this was going to be the last word on his relationship with Oscar Wilde, which he saw quite differently right. uh, about his personality, you know, about what kind of person he was. And so it just became an obsession to correct that record. Right. So even though... He had seen the manuscript as part of the discovery in the trial. It had not been made public or published at that point, right? The personal parts hadn't been published. Right. And uh, so they weren't published. So Bozy, although they were oh, very widely report they were very widely reported in the newspapers during that trial. So people had an opportunity to read a lot of parts of it in the newspapers. Okay. okay. But Bozy was sitting there thinking, I've got to sort of preemptively restore my reputation here because in 1962 that book could end up sort of defining aspects of the relationship that I had with Oscar Wilde. 
Yeah, and I think that that was largely true. I think, you know, Oscar Wilde's depiction of their relationship, certainly it was very well written and um, engaging. And um, people are more apt to believe Oscar Wilde than Lord Alfred Douglas, I think, because Douglas, you know, he he had a violent temper. He, he made a lot of enemies. And mm-hmm. so he was his own worst enemy in a lot of ways. Do you think that that ultimately Bosey and Ross uh, cared about Oscar? I think they did. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, I actually think that people have always tended to paint Ross and Douglas as romantic rivals. And there was the, you know, the... Ross was the good angel, he was the good influence, but he wasn't as intriguing as... Um, mm. As Bosey was to mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde, with, you know, and he was sort of dangerous and the bad boy, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to be driven by romantic jealousy because their their fight was so bitter. I think that that's what people concluded could only, you know, could be the only thing that was driving it was they were both in love with Oscar Wilde and they were fighting over him. Um, but I see two men who were both very conflicted about their own roles in Oscar Wilde's downfall. Mm. And this was someone that they admired more than anyone, who they loved, who went to jail, who suffered. And I think they both spent a lot of time thinking about what they could have done or not done. Um, and so to have someone else accusing them or accusing Bosey of being responsible for Wilde's downfall, I think that was, you know, it, it struck a very deep nerve. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And Bosey, it's it's clear to me, but Ross, I guess because you think he may have been one of the ones who was encouraging Wilde to go forward as they were kind of pursuing these this litigation that they were in with Bosey's father? You know, I think that Ross took Wilde to his lawyer when um, when his regular attorney wasn't available. He later would claim that he always advised him against the, the suit, mm-hmm. but there doesn't seem to be any contemporary evidence for that. Right. And along with, um, you know, the accounts by people who were talking about Wilde's friends egging him on, I think that there's a good reason to believe that his his circle, these men who were involved in the cause, you know, who were excited about that, riled each other up over this mm. this situation, mm-hmm. like a group of friends would. And now we see it as disastrous, but I don't think, I think at the time they thought that uh, Oscar Wilde was a master of communication, that he would, um, and Lord Queensbury, uh, Bosey's father, was kind of a, uh, he was a, a figure that was very scandalous, controversial. I think they thought that Wilde would walk over. Yeah. And when he didn't, uh, I think, you know, they both, gave a lot of thought to what what their roles were in it. And um, Ross, I think, was pretty active in changing the narrative so that it focused on Douglas as, alone. And and Douglas probably sensed that that was what Ross's uh, agenda was. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, letters where he wrote, because Douglas wrote tons of letters to people complaining about his 
how he was perceived. And he would write sort of plaintive things, whiny things about, why am I always the one who's blamed, you know? Right. Um, so in the end, did Douglas or Ross, did either of them get what they wanted? Well, I think that Ross achieved um, what he was trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we believe about Oscar Wilde and his biography, um, just the fact that we know who Oscar Wilde is, that he's such a um, unknown figure, that there's so many biographies of him today. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is down to Ross. Ross edited his works. He, you know, a lot of that had been scattered in the bankruptcy. He collected them. He he edited them. He, but he also did a lot of mythologizing. Mm. And I think that that mythologizing, Bosey actually at one point, when he was not on good terms with Ross, he actually said that he thought that that mythologizing was probably a necessary first step to, you know, ensure Wilde's legacy. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that I think that Ross achieved what he was what he was trying to do. Yeah. Um, I think that part of what he was trying to do, and whether it was conscious or whether it was just from his own feelings is to kind of make himself invisible in the story. Right. He comes out as the guy who helped Oscar Wilde and helped his family, but he wrote to a friend of his that the reason he was so driven to do that was because he felt responsible for what had happened with mm. with Wilde. Mm. On, on both those counts, I think he he achieved what he was trying to achieve. Yeah. And how would you say that this uh, feud between the two, Ross and Douglas, affect our understanding of Wilde? What's the, what's the impact on Wilde's legacy that we can see? One is that the, the idea of the kind of mythological figure of, of Douglas and that sort of doomed romance, the, you know, the, the love killing its object, which, uh, like I said, I think is a, an artistic concept of Wilde's that he was he was working on quite a bit before he met Bosey. Mm-hmm. And so his own De Profundis framed how we see him, um, and Ross was very instrumental in making sure that, that that document remained and making sure that it was believed and making sure that it was, you know, taken fairly literally. That sort of grand operatic story has become wild story but of course life is you know yeah the truth is rarely pure and never simple wild said right right <laughs> <laughs> predicting um so i have a surprise bonus question for you okay are you ready yes okay you are on a flight to london for a weekend of sightseeing as uh-huh. you, as you board the plane you assist the passenger next to you, a kind elderly man who is struggling to place his bag under the seat in front of him. The bag happens to fall open, and a magic wand falls out and rolls toward your feet. Oh, aren't you in luck, says the man as the two of you buckle up. This means I will need to grant you a wish. He explains that he can send you to visit Oscar Wilde, Lord Alfred Douglas, and Robert Ross, and you can ask each of them one question. What would you ask? Hmm. Wild, I would think my question would be, uh, tell me a story. (laughs) (laughs) 
because you know I've read so much, so yeah. much mythology. So much, not even mythology, but just praise for his his storytelling, his speaking style, his uh, conversation. Yeah, so you get him to to speak extemporaneously, and you could really get a sense of what it was like to be in the room with him. Experience that you know what it was that drew these people in. Yeah. Um, about uh, Ross. I think, I think I would I would want to know, um, you know, if he if he would if he would tell me the truth. I don't know if he would tell me the truth, <laughs> but, but I would ask him. I would ask him, you know, what what uh, what what was your brief on De Profundis? What did well tell you about uh, it? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but Ross was quite a storyteller so he'd probably tell me something very colorful and I wouldn't know whether it was true or not so yeah. I'd, I'd be in the same position I am now right Douglas hmm <laughs> it's hard to know what I would I would <laughs> ask him you know I've uh, the I would love to ask more questions of Ross probably than Douglas because Douglas has written so much he wrote uh four uh, autobiographical works yeah loads of letters um yeah. So you've already gotten his take on everything. You you definitely, if you spend any time reading what he had to say, you certainly know what his point of view is. Yeah. Okay, here's a part two. Uh, the passenger next to you orders a glass of champagne and says, Oh, I'm in a generous mood today. Let's do this. You can visit each of them and offer them one piece of advice to help them make their lives happier. What would you tell them? So I'm going back in time. Yes. And you can, and you can choose when you're giving them the advice. Let's see. Well, you know, I think I would tell uh, Wild not to sue uh, Queensbury. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, don't do it. Bad idea. Um, <laughs> that would make your life much happier. That would probably help uh, all three of them, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, that would probably be enough. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think that Douglas would take anybody's advice. Mm. So um, mm -hmm. a lot of people told him to just, you know, try to let let it be, you know, let the story be. Yeah. Focus on your poetry and, you know, show who you are by, you know, proving your own your own worth. And, uh, right. But he, he just, he, he got very listen. wrapped up in yeah. it. Yeah. No, and I don't think he, I don't think he would. Yeah. And uh, Ross, I think once they got involved in their dispute, mm -hmm. um, he tried to block Douglas at, at every turn from telling his story the way he wanted to. So he wanted to take De Profundis and respond to it line by line. And Ross uh, was the literary executor, so he wouldn't, he owned the text, he owned everything Wilde wrote. Mm. And so he would allow biographers to write things that were critical of Douglas, but he didn't allow Douglas to quote from Wilde's letters to prove, you know, the mm -hmm. opposite. Mm -hmm. And that just made him more and more frustrated yeah. and more and more, you know, mad and more and more determined to get Ross. Yeah. And I think that if he could have just, um, you know, let him have his say a little bit more early on, 
mm-hmm. things might not have escalated as they did. But, you know, I don't think any of them would have listened to me, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and my last question, and this this kind of goes back to the, the first episode I did on the trials of Oscar Wilde. I, I sort of came to the conclusion after reading about the trials that it's easy to want to blame society for everything that happened, and then you have to kind of look at it as even within that context, these personalities, it was almost as if their their flaws were kind of magnifying the problems and they, they were sort of their own worst enemy. But in general, I felt like it was just kind of a sad situation that nobody was really to blame. It was the conditions of the time that made all of this uh, just sort of this this pointless tragedy come about. And I'm wondering if you have the same view of what happened in this aftermath was it you know would you would you say that these were were people who really should have known better and that their their own actions were causing all of this strife and all of these headaches that they were bringing upon themselves or would you say that it was kind of an inevitability given the laws and everything that were in place at the time i think it's it's a combination you know i think that they all we all have the personalities that we have and mm-hmm. we we have to deal with things, you know, within the context of who we are. And um, I think given who they were and the times that they lived in and um, just the extraordinary circumstances, I, I do think that, I mean, you do, you do follow these, this battle between them and think, you know, you, you were good friends and why are you doing this to each other and stop? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, but, I didn't want to go in and say, you know, whose fault was it or who is more to blame. I I just wanted to, you know, when you take, it's like putting certain chemicals together and they Mm -hmm. have a reaction. And uh, it's hard to imagine that those ingredients could have come up with too many different, too many different results. Right. Well, it's a fascinating story. It's the twists and turns are fascinating. And the way that it all revolves around this manuscript, I found to be, just sort of endlessly interesting as as the people are wrestling over this and knowing that at the heart of it is Oscar Wilde, who I think is one of the really the the greatest men of his age and and certainly in the literary pantheon and and Laura Lee, I hope everyone runs out and buys your book, Oscar's Ghost, and thank you for joining me today on the history of literature. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature podcast. Wasn't that great? My thanks to Laura Lee, who had a stone in her shoe, which is how great books are often begun. You can find her book at Amazon and other places online, and maybe in your local bookstores, depending on where you live. Oscar's Ghost by Laura Lee. Check out patreon.com slash literature, historyofliterature.com, and historyofliterature.com slash shop for all of your History of Literature podcast needs. Oh, and let us know how you're doing. We'd love to hear from you in emails and comments. We'll be back soon with Mike, our friend and the president of the Literature Supporters Club. You can also recommend our sister podcast, The Smart Awesome Show, where smart people do awesome things all over the world. Some good stuff over there. Inspirational. I'm Jack Wilson. As always... Thank you for listening, 
and we'll see you next time. Thank you.